For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into a, an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very good. Expanding reality. Okay, bye-bye. Feeling good? Yeah, feeling great. Ben Tejada Ingram. Dude, it is so good to see you, man. The last time uh, we were talking on episode 131 about your amazing book, The Last Dinosaur of the Lost World, My Search for Little Nessie, which, by the way, led us to one of the coolest dudes we've been able to make contact here because of you. Thank you with Jose Miguel Perez Gomez. We love this dude, man. Also, though, now you are back with your new book, The Lands Forgotten by Time, a cryptozoologist's guide to lost worlds and legends, dude. This book is so much fun. I got it in. You sent it to me. Thank you, by the way. You sent it to me. I poured a cup of coffee, started reading it, was so enamored, dude. I had things to do that afternoon. Cleared the schedule, made more coffee, and sat down and just read this thing all the way through. Love it, man. It's one of the coolest. uh, Guys, again, all the ways to find him located down in the show notes, but it's one of the coolest books ever. It's not a huge time commitment, which is thank you, but the way that you describe things, your writing style, your very factual when it comes to evidence, but also you have fun and you ask some amazing questions, which I think is one of the hallmarks of a great author is you really pulled me into this place, man, into all of these places in here. And we're going to talk about it, plus something very special that you've got that you just are bursting to get off your chest. You haven't talked about anywhere yet. So first of all, Ben, how are you, man? It's good to see you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that great introduction. Uh, I am so excited to be uh, back on the show. It's been a while, but... This is awesome. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Like I said, this is probably one of my favorite shows in the entire universe. So uh, it's a big uh, honor for me to be back on here. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I uh, yeah, I recently published this new book, and uh, yeah, it's you know it explores all sorts of cryptids, but they're very different ones. Hopefully, ones not everyone has heard about, because I kind of like been on this thing where I'm looking for places in the world where no one knows about or no one has ever been there, unexplored, isolated, kind of like this whole lost world hypothesis where it could be anything there because absolutely no one knows about these places or, well, people know about some of them, but no one has ever been there and really studied what's there. And uh, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, There's obviously some that are, uh, have been explored, but there's a couple ones that people just don't even know anything about. And like, 
there's this one place in Papua New Guinea where this the first ever scientific expedition to this mountain range unearthed a couple hundred new species in this one like short expedition alone. So it's incredible like how much is still out there that people have no idea absolutely no idea about yet so yeah and this is just the lands we know about maybe there's a bunch of lands we don't even know about that have a ton of shit you know there's a lot of ocean they say is there that i'm not sure man i'd say atlantis maybe or something still plopped out there maybe oh, some yeah. aliens atlantis. have a base out there it, it yeah. is, again it's so cool dude and uh let we're gonna come back to a few of the specific examples in your book because i have them listed here and i can't wait to talk to you about these things uh again guys linked in the show description but tell me about this new thing that has your obsession dude you you're just obsessed with this and i want to hear all about it all right yeah i'm i'm uh i've been like this is a big subject and i'm still researching it potentially trying to write a new book about it but there's kind of a lot of moving parts right now and uh, we'll see how it all turns out. But uh, this has been like a kind of, I've been, yeah, it's been down this rabbit hole nonstop since I've heard about it. So, uh, so I'll just tell the story real fast. A couple of months ago, I got this message from uh, this uh, one of my followers on Instagram and he was like, Hey, how's it going? Um, my name's Zhao. Shout out Zhao if you're listening. And he says, uh, I'm a fan of like your book and stuff. And uh, did you know, he says, I'm from Brazil. And in our country, I just heard that there's supposed to be another one of these lost world tepoys or plateaus that actually has lots of reports of dinosaurs living there. Like, surviving flesh and blood dinosaurs and this place is called Peru Pira and he sent me this uh link to an article about it and uh and he's like maybe you could look into this for me because like I can't find out much about it really like I I don't even know if it's real so um I saw this message and I was like well that's strange I I don't think I've heard of this either and I'm like literally a person who wrote a book about a dinosaur on a plateau. And I thought that I knew about this kind of stuff. But, In South America. Yeah. But um, yeah, so this one, uh, I had never heard of it. And um, apparently not very many people have. So um, I clicked the link and it goes to this article, which uh, probably in the show notes, guys. And uh, so this article starts off with a really, really interesting statement and says, um, when Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the book, The Lost World, he actually based this whole novel off of this one specific location in Brazil, uh, this plateau. It's not any other plateau. It's this one specific place. And uh, I thought that was a little weird because I've never heard of this place and uh, supposedly... Arthur Conan Doyle based it off of Mount Roraima or Ayan Tapui. But, um, but I also remembered something I'd learned, which was that there is over a hundred of these similar table mountains, plateaus in uh, South America, Brazil, Venezuela, and many of them are completely unheard of and unexplored, I should say. So I was like, okay, well, it's possible. This is one of these ones that no one has really been to. And like very few people even have heard of it even. So um, 
I started reading this article, and it says uh, all the information we have about Kurupira is uh, from a Czechoslovakian author named Yaroslav Mares, who wrote a couple different books about it. And uh, his books were about an expedition he made to get there. And uh, he also met a guy who used to live there, a prospector, who let him transcribe his journals for his other book. And uh, according to him, um, there are supposed to be at least three different species of dinosaurs, which are reported very widely and well-known and even named by the uh, Yanomami tribe, specifically the Weka tribe in Brazil. And uh, so the cryptids that we have there, there's one called the Stoa. And that is the big connection to Arthur Conan Doyle, because in that book, his supposedly fictional book, the uh, giant predatory dinosaur that they kind of have an encounter with is also called a stoa by the people in this supposedly completely fictional book. And uh, according to Yaroslav Mares, no, this is a real thing that people encounter out in like the jungle, and they describe it as a kind of like giant alligator that walks bipedally. And uh, there's even like some stories about their hunters having a battle with it. And apparently their arrows just have no effect. Like it has this thick armored hide. It's kind of like this terrifying thing. And uh, apparently there's also um, these pterodactyl things which uh the prospector who had his journals transcribed actually saw them they're giant they're like have a wingspan of 20 feet and they're they look exactly like you imagine a pterodactyl and uh he said he saw two of them and like you'll hear them too they make a lot of like terrifying shrieks and all this and so you know i i read this article and it was really fascinating but by the end of it, I was kind of like, okay, so where, where is this place? It doesn't really describe it. And uh, it didn't take me too long from looking into this to realize that no one really knew exactly where this was. And I started like looking it up a little bit more online. And uh, it turns out like there's some people who have tried to research where this is and how to get there, but no one can find it on any kind of map. It's not on Google or Earth, really. It's, it's nowhere to be seen. And uh, kind of like in the footnotes of this article, uh, the author of the article, Dr. Carl Schuker, he mentions, oh, they actually changed the name of this place. So it was called Kurupira, and it used to exist on all these maps. And then sometime around uh, the 1950s, 60s, it just disappeared. They erased it from all maps and no one can find any mention of it like the at all whatsoever. So um, I don't know. So I was like, this is really weird. And I, I'm going to, I was like, I'm determined to get to the bottom of this. Like this is ridiculous that no one can find it. And people even say it's all a hoax. Like some people are saying that actually I was like, okay, well it can't be that hard to find a massive, table mountain out in the jungle we have google earth so uh i was like okay that's what i'm gonna do easy right so do you get any clues to direction or close to country or anything like that you just started you just like okay i'm gonna start here and go that way um so what 
apparently there are a couple like since this book was written in Czechoslovakia and then never translated to English, like I couldn't really find much in terms of the references online. And like, there's only a couple who knows if they were translated correctly passages about where it's supposed to be. So uh, don't ask me how, but I was able to track down through some mutual contacts, a copy of the book, uh, an electronic copy like it's a out of print, by the way, it's very expensive, rare book. And uh, so I was able to get this electronic copy, which I then uh, threw into Google documents uh, and had it translated because Google can just translate any language to any language. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Like they do a decent job. So immediately I was uh, looking through the, uh, trying to find references and actually was able to find a lot of references of exactly where this place is located. And uh, so I guess I'll just cut to the chase. I did find the location. It's absolutely a hundred percent real place. And it, if people want to look this up, they can. Um, it's the confluence of the Brazil border, Venezuela's border, and then the Amazonian states of Roraima and uh, Roraima and Amazonas. So it's like where these two states intersect and where the two countries intersect. That's where it is. And we know this is the right location because uh, it's pointed out several times. Um, this is where the spring of the Orinoco River is. There's several other rivers. And there's just several other like mentions of the nearby uh, landmarks and geography that all kind of check out. And so <laughs> when you look at this place on uh, Google Maps, it doesn't immediately like pop out, but you can kind of see this very jagged cliff line and you can be like, okay, there's definitely cliffs here. Um, and uh, yeah, I was able to look at this place in, uh, yeah, in, uh, topographic mapping shows it a little bit clearer and you can definitely see there's like about a thousand meter spike in elevation at these cliffs but it doesn't look like the cliffs are continuous they don't like wrap the whole way around a big circle they're kind of only on one edge but this is also what the author states like it's a kind of strange geography. It's, it is a tepoi, but it's only apparent from this like one angle on the ground, which is the way everyone sees it really. So it's a little bit confusing because I would say, yeah, it is technically a tepoi. It's a plateau, but it's not a hundred percent wrapping around and it's in the middle of like a whole other mountain range on either side, but it is something that's very real and apparent. And so, so yeah, that's, a. am kind of trying to write this new book, focusing on, um, proving that it's real, proving where it is and trying to back up some of these stories and claims of some of these dinosaurs people are said to encounter around there. But, uh, I, so I was reading the book and, um, in Czechoslovakian, my translated book. And uh, it's an incredible book because um, any thought of it being a hoax goes out the window. Like you can tell this guy, uh, Yaroslav Mares, and uh, his story 
starts off in uh, the year 1970. And uh, so he was, um, he's an entomologist. He's a scientist and he uh, also works for Czechoslovakian airlines. So he has the opportunity to travel the world and he's in Brazil and the year is 1970. And uh, he's in this uh, bar in uh, kind of like a seedy neighborhood, kind of a very, uh, I don't know how to describe it, very, uh, CD back alley bar in Br- Manaus, Brazil. And uh, he's, you know, having a drink or two. And he meets this guy who is a trapper and he used to trap furs and capture animals. And this guy is like very old, very, uh, he has like an eye patch on. Like you can tell he's lived a hard life out in the jungle for many years. And so they he they are kind of like drinking together and uh, getting to know each other and telling stories, you know. And so this trapper tell tells him a very uh, interesting, crazy story. And the trapper says, "This was about twenty years ago. Now we're talking about 1950. This backwoods Amazonian jungle trapper is a uh, he is approached by some." swedish or swiss guys a couple guys who find him and know he knows his way around the woods of the amazon unexplored country and uh they say we're we want to hire you as a guide we're going to go on an expedition to this uh table mountain that's supposed to be out there and uh he's like okay well you're gonna pay me and they they offer to pay him very well and then these two guys that are trying to hire him say, yeah, so the place we want to go explore is called Kurupira. And that's when uh, his blood runs cold. And he says, are you out of your mind? Are you insane? No one goes to Kurupira. Everyone knows to avoid this place. Uh, all the tribes of the Amazon are absolutely terrified of this place including the Waka tribe. This is their territory and they don't even go there. They say that people will just instantly uh, drop dead. Like uh, it's, there's supposed to be something very evil. In fact, excuse me. this is where the uh, demon of the forest supposedly lives because the word Kurupira, if you look it up, it translates to demon of the forest. And it's this, Brazilian mythological being sometimes described as like a short, hairy humanoid, but other times it's more like this, uh, no shape, just kind of lurking evil presence. But the thing about it is, is all the tribes and all the people, they know like it has a home and its home is Kurupira. And it's this table mountain that no one, like everyone is terrified to go to for some reason. And so this trapper, he knows this, of course, because he he lives there or near there. And he says, I even heard a story of some Venezuelan or yeah, Venezuelan military defectors. They were fleeing the country to Brazil and they came through Curupira like they're fleeing the government. They're trying to come into Brazil and they actually went to this table mountain. They were camping up there. And uh, one of the scouts, he uh, he's tasked to like go ahead and scout out the terrain while everyone else makes camp. So he goes out and he's doing his thing. He's scouting like 
which way they should go if the river is okay for their boat. And when he gets back to camp, he says everyone, like about 10 people, are all dead. And they it looks like they had all been running from something. They're all scattered in every direction. But it's as if they all just dropped dead. He cannot find any uh, injury. He cannot find anything on their bodies. Uh, so, and the trapper, uh, he met him while he was still fleeing. And this guy was traumatized, terrified, told him this weird story about Kuropira and kind of confirmed everything people say about it for him. So uh, the trapper, he basically is like, look, I know you guys are going to pay me well to be your guide, but I'm not going to do it. Like, I'm just not going to do it. Like, no one does this. You guys are crazy. So they're like, okay. And then these two Swiss guys, they uh, leave and they supposedly disappear on this expedition. And it's not until a couple years later when uh, this trapper is back in Manaus, Brazil in a kind of curiosity shop in the back alley. And that's when he sees them. He sees their two heads, shrunken heads. And it's the two guys and he comes, you know, he looks at it, he's sure it's them. And he's like, oh, my God, thank, thank God I did not go with these guys because something horrible happened to them. Um, who knows if it had to do with Kuropira, but, like, they did not end up very well. So this is all told to Yaroslav Mares. This is his first introduction to the subject. And... Uh, yeah, it's like a very strange, kind of seems like a tall tale, but uh, it's kind of scary. Um, and so he kind of realizes, though, like, where have I heard this word before? Kurupira, what is this from? And he, uh, he knows, actually, where he's heard that word. It's from Arthur Conan Doyle's book, The Lost World, which was uh, published in uh, 1913. And that book is a supposedly completely fictional book about this uh, expedition that goes to this plateau out in northern Brazil by the Venezuelan border. And there they encounter the Stoa and like all these dinosaurs. And um, the first uh, instance of Kurupira in that book is kind of in the opening section and in, the, in this fictional, supposedly fictional book, uh, Professor Challenger, he's uh, the hero or one of the protagonists. And he's talking about his last trip to the Amazon and explaining it to the other protagonist. protagonist. And he says, I was out in the Amazon along an unnamed river, and I spent the night in an Indian village. And this guy, this half-dead guy, came to the camp and he seemed like a European and he unfortunately died, but his name was Maple White. And uh, he left behind all his journal with all these drawings and all these, these books. And there are some drawings of weird dinosaur looking animals, drawings of this big wall of cliffs rising out of the jungle. And uh, so in this yeah, so Professor Challenger in the supposedly fictional story, he was like, where did this guy come from? What? Where did he go? And he says, I could probably guess this myself because I know the Indian legends of the 
Kurupira. It's supposed to be the demon of the forest. It's this lurking menace in the forest. But it's more than that. Everyone, all the tribes, they agree on which direction it's from. They know where it is in the jungle. And it's to the north. It's near the uh, border. Well, he doesn't say that in the book, but that's the direction. So, yeah. So in this book, uh, then what happens, you know, uh, he goes there and he finds it and the rest of the book is about a bigger expedition there and uh, supposedly all fictional, right? But uh, in this book, they actually uh, describe how they get there. And this is where it gets really interesting because um, they start out in the city of Manaus, Brazil, and then they go along the main river. They don't name it. And it's all like kind of secretive. They say they don't want to disclose the location. And then they take a side river, a smaller river, and there's a series of rapids. And now this is uh, what um, in this book, Yaroslav Mares, when he decides to go there on his expedition, he encounters the same rapids. He encounters all the same landmarks on his way. And uh, yeah, so eventually they end up at this uh, tabletop mountain, which is right on the Venezuelan-Brazil border. And uh, yeah, so in Arthur Conan Doyle's version of it, the geography of it is, strangely enough, about the same dimensions as the real-life version of it. So that's another thing where you go, okay, maybe he really was um, encoding this hidden information in his book. and. What Arthur Conan Doyle is famous for, of course, is Sherlock Holmes, and he loved puzzles. He loved ciphers. He loved to kind of like encode hidden meanings and things. And uh, supposedly where he got his information to write The Lost World was from the explorer Percy Fawcett, who uh, he's famous for the movie The Lost City of Z. He was uh, this explorer who went to the Amazon many times and actually went missing in the year 1925, I think. And um, so even though neither of them talk about Kurupira specifically, um, it's kind of theorized that uh, they met up, which they did, and Percy Fawcett told Arthur Conan Doyle about his expeditions to Bolivia and this other plateau in Bolivia. And so... I've been piecing this together and it's kind of, you got to think Percy Fawcett probably didn't go there. Like his expeditions are pretty well documented and he liked to brag about all of them a lot. So if he had went there, he would have told everyone about it, but I think it had to have been him that told Arthur Conan Doyle about the Kurupira and maybe who knows, Percy Fawcett was this famous explorer. Maybe he met someone who went there. Maybe it was similar to what happened with Maple White in the novel. Maybe he met someone half dead who got back from there, who told him how to get there. He told him which rivers, uh, where exactly this place is. And uh, yeah, it's all uh, encoded in the novel if you follow the landmarks. And the map is actually in the novel. Like It shows a map of how to get there. <laughs> so it's very interesting if you compare the map of the real route you have to take to get there to the map in this fictional book, it's almost exactly the same. 
And there can be no question that, um, in my mind, it's talking about this place. Like, how else would Arthur Conan Doyle known to call it that? And uh, so Yaroslav Mares, he is doing all this research, and he he's able to find some older maps that show, that actually mark it out on these older older maps only. And he kind of notices that newer maps kind of erase this place. It's like it doesn't exist anymore, but... Older maps show it, and it's right there, and it, everyone can see it for themselves on these older maps. So, uh, yeah, that's another thing that's very interesting, is that it's shown on maps, and it's the exact spot they go in the novel, if you follow the journey they take. It's the exact spot you go in real life, and this place is literally called Kurupira. So, so I know, there's a lot of things about it that, point to it being real and uh there's also the fact that some of these names like uh the stoa apparently exist in real life and are associated and uh this isn't ever talked about anywhere else but i noticed that in the novel the lost world they have a name for the ape men uh, and that's kind of like the they call them these anthropoid ape men they're kind of like these Bigfoot things and they live up there and there's this battle and they kill them all in the book. I don't think that ever happened. Obviously that's all made up, but the name for the ape men is Dota. Like the Indians call them Dota. And if you go into the uh, mythology um, in Brazil, there's a very famous cryptid called the Mapinguari, which is described as this, very hairy, very tall thing. Sometimes it's described kind of ape-like. But uh, on the Venezuelan side of the border, they have a different name for it. It's a Didi, D-I-D-I. And so I'm like, there's no way that Dota and Didi are basically talking about this same thing. Like, like that is not a coincidence at all whatsoever. In fact, uh, that's what in the book it's spelled differently kuropira is spelled like he changes the vowels kurupuri is what it is in his book so that's kind of how he like changes it up like he can't say the exact names the exact things out there but he has to maintain the same you know yeah it, it is the same thing so um yeah i think what what happened was percy fawcett swore arthur conan doyle to secrecy like he he said look probably the reason why was like percy fawcett was the real explorer he knew all about this but he had never been there and he told arthur conan doyle all about it he's like you cannot tell people exactly where this is because i want to be the first to go there like i i'm pretty sure this is what happened i'm just kind of guessing here but I'm sure that is the reason why Percy Fawcett was telling him, like, don't don't disclose the true location or the real names or any of the real things like that people can figure out if you're going to write about this. I want you to keep it secret, probably because, yeah, because he wanted to go there someday. Probably like I, I don't see why he wouldn't want to go there. And uh, yeah, he probably wanted to discover it for himself and it would have been probably one of his major discoveries had he not uh, gone missing and 
who knows? Maybe he went missing in search of this place. It's very well possible. Uh, Maybe he found it. And yeah, this there. place. Uh, that that's a possibility. Like I, I like to think that that that's pretty cool to think about. I mean, it's not cool that he died, but but he made it to you the know destination. he knew about At least it. He died with the knowledge that it existed. You know, as he's getting devoured by this, you know, dinosaur, this soma. Yeah. Well. <laughs> It, it's possible yeah yeah it's very possible and uh so yeah that's uh that's a little bit about kerpira for you and uh you know i i'm very convinced it's all real and that uh that's another thing i'm doing is i'm trying to find more reports of uh specifically like dinosaurs existing because i don't think they all live on kerpira it's too small even though it's a good place for them they're probably more spread out and they there's actually been several reports of different dinosaurs all throughout the Amazon rainforest. So what I think is happening is that they're kind of concentrated there and they might actually, a lot of them might live there, but uh, this is another super important point. I should probably should have said earlier is that this whole place is completely inaccessible. Like no one's allowed in, because it's a Indian reservation. Uh, and on top of that, it's extremely, extremely, I cannot say this enough, extremely dangerous to go there. I've been told on good authority. Yeah. Jose that, uh, Miguel, you talked to Jose Miguel on the phone yeah, and he no, said, do not go there, man. He, <laughs> it's war torn. No, he told, <laughs> he's right. Because uh, gold diggers is the problem. Um, They've kind of invaded this whole area of the Amazon, illegal gold miners, and they're ruthlessly exterminating the Yanomami, the Weka Indians. It's awful. It's like a genocide, basically. And uh, they're in there, and uh, literally, like, no, uh, Jose Miguel is like, no, no, this is like insane. It's dangerous. Like, he's never been there. Like, he didn't really know of it. But he's like, no, this area, like, if you're thinking about it, like, I would say, think twice, because, um, yeah, these gold miners, like, they're, they're popping up everywhere. They're killing off all the Indians, and, you know, they're, it's all illegal, but uh, it's all kind of a corruption situation, because they probably bribe off the officials and whatnot, and, uh, yeah, Recently in the news, uh, the government has been taking some action against them. And like literally uh, what they're doing is they're going in and like bombing the camps of these gold diggers, like just dropping bombs on them, sending in the army, taking them out. So when Jose Miguel Perez Gomez says this is a war zone, he's not even <laughs> exaggerating. That's, no. that's what's happening. So, um, you know. If anyone is thinking of going there to find these dinosaurs, I would say, dude, forget about that. Like, that's the wrong way to go about it. Like, what I think people should focus on is trying to find, there's, you know, several organizations set up for the benefic benef uh, beneficial outcomes for the Yanomami Indians and the Weka Indians. Uh, I probably wouldn't trust the official Brazilian organ organization, FUNAI, it's called. That's supposedly the Indian Protection Organization. 
And there's been a lot of claims over the years that they're corrupt and they're part of the problem. I mean, I, I don't know about nowadays, but I mean, that's been what I've people have said about them in the past. But no, there's actually all sorts of independent like organizations that are trying to help the situation and uh, charities and stuff like that that benefit the Yanomami Indians. And uh, this is really the story of the Yanomami Indians. It's not really about Yaroslav Mares. It's about these people who live in this place who have this knowledge of all this incredible stuff and they are, you know, they're dying off at a horrible rate. And, uh, do you so think yeah, that could be part kind of, it? of almost like a go in and take the people out that know some secret shit kind of a thing, but then guys it under the idea of gold. Dude, I think it's, there's a lot more to this than we can even think like, uh, so that's another thing that Yaroslav Mares starts to come to believe. He, he thinks there's something more going on like he even says it could be there is some kind of ufo base there uh there was like a highway that was supposed to go through there and they canceled this highway and he says according to him like uh this place is guarded by the military um so it's really interesting um i don't really know but think about the legend itself of the crew pira it's this formless evil thing but it's really not necessarily evil it's protecting the spot like this spot is very important for some reason and uh yeah there's actually lots of stories about people just dropping dead like animals dropping dead it's almost as if something is there like i don't know if it could be something supernatural like you want to think in terms of elementals as a term that people have in the paranormal world for these kind of like spirits, non-human entities that will guard these natural sites. And even if something like that isn't real, like, I don't know, but uh, this place is full of caves. This is the source of major rivers. The Orinoco river has its spring there. So there's all this underground activity. There's this water. And I was thinking myself, could there be some kind of crazy gas leak situation happening from time to time where let's say, uh, yeah. Um, the Venezuelan defectors, let's say it was some kind of like gas coming from underground that just took them all out. Or actually this has happened a couple times. There's another story, Yaroslav Marest. He, he goes to, uh, this missionary settlement that's, really close to the location but uh it's called the porto da maloca is what it's called that's the closest landmark if anyone wants to look up in google earth but uh he says porto da maloca was called that because it's the port of evil uh and it got that name because apparently there's a big group of these gold gold digger guys hanging out there and they all just mysteriously drop dead overnight, like a whole bunch of them. And no one can find any sign of injury on their bodies. So it's really scary and weird what's happening there. You so, think also um, about like the Anunnaki and how they were obsessed with gold, you know? And yeah, it could be this yeah. Kurupira uh, beast, but then also if these are 
indigenous descriptions that aren't familiar with technology, maybe they would miss the whole idea of it being an extraterrestrial and they possessing some sort of technology. Sort of like the right. chariots of the gods idea that it's, oh, chariots of fire come out of the sky, but we would describe them as ships or UFOs now, right? Um, and it, do you think that it could be something like that where uh, it is just sort of a mis- nomenclature of a nuts and bolts maybe technology that but it's still awesome and then therefore that could be some sort of consciousness you know altering thing to make them drop dead right i do because here's the deal like there are lots of mountains all around the world that are supposed to be like home of the gods type thing and nexuses for all this weird paranormal stuff like for example of course mount shasta is a really good example like people see UFOs there constantly. There's Bigfoot. There's a underground city. Uh, let's say Mount Adams. We were just talking about that one. That one has supposed to be like some kind of UFO portal base. Like one of these, it's really weird. Like these mountains, it's always these mountains that are like this and they seem to be even connected in some way. It's a pattern. It exists all around the world. Like I don't care what country you're in you're going to hear stories of this mystical mountain, like home of the gods. Let's think Greek mythology, uh, Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus. Yeah. Or even, uh, one of the ones in my book I talk about is, uh, in Bhutan, there's this. Yes. Mystical we're going to talk about it. The tiger's that no Nest one Monastery. is allowed to. Oh my God. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, these mountains are potentially a bigger pattern going on and, something really weird about certain mountains all over the world. It makes so, me yeah, think that there's sort of know. outposts for underground, you know, like let's say that the hollow earth thing is a thing and that there's really a subterranean world under there. And maybe the idea that these cryptids, what we would call cryptids, because we don't find them just walking around all over the place here. Maybe the fact that they're spotted in that area is an indicator that there's an access port there. You think of like Admiral Burns, Bird's reports of flying over Antarctica where there's a large land of like uh, vegetation and he saw uh, woolly mammoths and shit walking around. Well, you don't think like, well, how did they get there? Maybe they walked over there. They were isolated from when the land masses split up or maybe it's just like a vent port for inside and you can go down there anytime you want. But again, like you said, I think there is something to these mountains being sacred and also in a way being spooky. So you're kind of scared off from going there. And especially if they just kind of let their pet Lonas just walk around on the surface and eat people, then it's kind of like a nice deterrent for folks to stay away from there anyway. But you also have extraterrestrial or at least a technological backup secondary, and then probably a military presence there as well. So it would make sense that these are sort of like, you know, pop-up points for the entrances to all these subterranean worlds. Yeah, yeah, no, it, I think that, well, we know with Kuropira, there's something going on underground because that's where this major underwater aquifer is, like the Orinoco Basin. It's one of the biggest rivers in the world, like the biggest ones, one in Venezuela, certainly. So there is like all sorts of underground stuff there. And um, yeah, there's actually lots of uh, kind of, I think there are reports of UFOs seen there too, because in part two of the book, um, this prospector he didn't never said his real name but he talks about something weird he talks about miners and these guys seeing these floating balls of light like they come into your camp they kind of float around it's not normal like it's something strange and uh like i don't know if you would call that a ufo or like a 
it's Willow unidentified. Wisp, but yeah. It's kind of like they, they think they're leading you to your death. Like you don't want to mess with these things. They're kind of spooky. And that's actually, believe it or not, that is something that comes up in the book, The Lost World. They talk about this one uh, thing and it's kind of like you see it at nighttime and it's this like kind of floating orb of light and they no one knows what it is. And it's like, how did that specific thing get in that book? Like, I'm telling you, Arthur Conan Doyle knew a lot more than people realize about real things. And uh, it's a different way to look at his work because I really do think he based it all off of real, real stuff. It's f- pretty cool. It's pretty I cool, think. Ben. Yeah, uh, we all think, by the way. Uh, again, everybody down there, uh, check out his YouTube for sure. There's some amazing things going on over there that you guys have done. You and Nate, of course, from uh, Reality Czars do some amazing shit. Um, also, again, episode 131, that's where you can find his introductions. And in the first time that we spoke... His Instagram, YouTube, Anomaly Hunters X. You guys check it out. Of course, all of his books are located down below. And to that point, my friend, holy shit, Kuropia, I can see why you uh, were obsessed with it. And thank you for talking. Now, thank I'm you for letting me go off. Like I, I haven't really <laughs> figured out a way to condense this all down in a way that's like easily understandable. Like there's so much going on with this subject. I, I don't know. Like I need to figure out a way to describe it and like. Two sentences. You know, well, we're I mean. grateful to discover it along with you, you know, to where it's like, hey, here's this thing, but I just can't, I, I got to talk about it, but I'm not, it's not fully formulated yet. And that's still studying as a researcher. This. Yeah. yeah. Let me, let me know. You guys do want to see the whole book I'm writing about it. We do. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and speak for like everyone it's still, that's nodding okay. right now. Yes. We do want that book, Ben, please. <laughs> okay. All right. And Thank speaking you. of your books, uh, they're amazing. And again, link down below. Let's let's talk about a couple of things out of here, because, again, I sat down, thought, oh, OK, I'll read the intro and get back to it and then just didn't put it down, buddy. So um, let's talk about a few of these in here. I have a few noted, but did you have anything that you were just really wanting to talk about in this book? Whatever you want to ask me about. Yeah. Okay. Pacific Thunderbird. Anything. I got to know. All about right. Pacific all right. Let's let's get into it. Yeah. The yeah. Pacific Thunderbird. That's kind of the name I have for it. Uh, but. No one else. This is uh, one that was really exciting because uh, I don't think anyone knows about it. Like, I'm actually positive that very few people talk about this cool cryptid. And so um, how I learned about this thing was um, I had a friend at work and uh, I was talking to him one day about uh, Bigfoot because I talk about Bigfoot all the time. I told him a story about my cool encounter I had when I was growing up. And so then he like looks at me as I tells, says something strange. He's like, yeah, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up on the Island of Fiji in the Pacific. And uh, I saw that one time this gigantic bird that looked like a dragon. Like I thought it could be a dragon, but it was a bird with feathers and uh, I was out playing outside in a field. And uh, so this thing swoops in, it dives in from the sky, and it actually grabs a guy who's out in the field working, picks him up in his claws like it's nothing, carries him off, flies away. And no one witnesses this but me. It's shocking. It's terrifying. And uh, the guy is screaming, and no one even sees it. And okay i was like 
wow, are you like messing with me right now? Like, I don't know what to think about this. This is like, I, I literally thought he was messing with me, but I kind of like very quickly realized that he was um, very serious about it. He was like, look, I haven't told anyone about this. I haven't even told my like fiance about this. Uh, Cause people, when you tell them about that, tell people about this, they'll think you're crazy. He said his parents like wrote it off at, uh, as his imagination. Like he's a little kid, but he's like, no, this is a real thing, but no one believes it. And it was kind of traumatizing to me. And uh, I was like, well, yes, thank you for telling me. I don't think you're crazy at all. I'm going to look into this for you. I'm going to figure this out. And so um, I, it was kind of, hard to find any specific references except for I finally found in a very old book written in the 1930s about Polynesian mythology and folklore. It says there's a myth in Fiji about a giant man-eating bird and it's called uh, the Ngani Vatu. It's, but this is supposed to be something in mythology and it's like there's this mythological character who it came down, it stole his wife and then he tracks it back to its lair. And he has this like epic, epic battle with it and he kills it and all this stuff. And it's like told as this uh, mythology thing. Like they're all kind of like deities and it's not supposed to be like anything real per se, but I was like, okay, well there's something in their mythology that checks out. Like this is a uh, talking about, a giant man-eating bird that carries people away. And that was all I could find about it at first. So uh, I, I decided to like look into this broader picture and I looked up um, like in the greater area and it turns out the closest country to Fiji is New Zealand. And New Zealand also has a myth of a giant man-eating predatory bird. But unlike almost all myths like this in the world, like Thunderbird stories, this myth is known to be a real animal that one time lived because they have found the fossils in New, New Zealand of this giant eagle called the Host Eagle. Host's Eagle is what it was called. And uh, this thing only went extinct about 600 years ago. So not very long ago, they were real and flying around New Zealand. And like they, they were the biggest eagle that has ever existed. And the relative size uh, of these fossils they found so far are uh, the size of the biggest eagle today. Plus about the biggest eagle today is 21 pounds. The biggest host eagle would have been about 33 pounds. So we're talking significantly bigger. These are huge eagles and they are known to carry away livestock and like even small children. And they are massive. They're terrifying. And there's all these stories about them. But uh, supposedly like they died off about uh, 600 years ago because their sources of food were kind of dwindling also and People were killing them. And so I realized, though, it's actually not like that far from New Zealand to Fiji. So it's possible, like 
some of them could have flown away or they could have been transported like by boats. I, I don't know, but if any of these host eagles could have ended up on the smaller. So Fiji, I should tell you guys, it's a ar- archipelago. archipelago. That means it's a giant island chain. There's over 300 islands alone in Fiji. And uh, 200 of them are completely uninhabited. There's no people at all. Like, actually, everyone lives on just about two islands, like the Bay Islands. And the rest of the country, there's no one living there. And for the most part, a lot of these islands, no one even goes there because it's, like, so far out there. And, you know, like, why why would anyone go to these places except for kind of, like, tourism? But they don't even go to all of them, not even close. So I was thinking about it, and uh, if any of these eagles managed to, like, survive on one of these uninhabited islands, they would have uh, access to unlimited supplies of food, uh, Fiji's ecosystem, the ocean, if they could fish, which why couldn't they fish their eagles? Uh, They could have as much food as they could ever want no predators and uh that's something that is talked about in science it's this uh phenomenon called island giganticism where if you take any kind of animal and put it on a small island where they have no predators but they have a large food source they will turn into gigantic versions of their mainland counterpart and a good example of that is a giant uh, galapagos tortoise or even like the Komodo dragons, like we have all these, usually it's like a reptile fills that apex predator niche and becomes a giant version of themselves. So I was thinking these host eagle, it's already considered an island giganticism effect, but take that same eagle and put it on a much, much, much smaller island. There is potential for a very short period of time for these things to grow so much bigger to become absolutely massive big enough to carry away a full-grown human being easily uh it's very well possible that if that were to happen that would be the case and uh you know maybe from time to time they still fly out to these populated areas and people might see them occasionally and yeah if uh if that were to happen, they could easily carry away a full-grown human being and, uh, you know, eat him alive or whatever. God, so, can you uh, imagine? <laughs> and why, did, why wouldn't you go, hey, I know what happened to that guy. Like, was there no missing persons report for that farmer? Like, nobody gave a shit about him? They're like, I saw your dude. There probably you was. I, off. There probably was, but who's going to believe, like, this kid? Like, the kid is <laughs> Maybe too the frightened to wife. even <laughs> like, talk about it. It's like I found yeah, a bunch of I blood in his I'm... hoe laying on the ground, and he loves that hoe, so I don't know. Something happened to him, you know? It, I mean, it probably was uh, just a missing person report that was filed and no one knew. Like, Fuck. And you think of this just in disappeared. relation to all the 411 stuff. It's like how, you know, they isolate all the national parks and stuff, and that's where if you overlay these, you know, missing persons cases where a lot of them come up. So you think that maybe the government is sort of reining off this area to where you're just being fed to these things if you go in there you have a chance of being fed to these entities whatever's in there well yeah yeah that's that's something yeah the missing 411 uh there's 
something weird about that. Like, I, I don't know. It could be everything weird areas. About yeah. 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 Everything's weird about that. Yeah. All right. Um, it could be wanna... like certain areas. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like they're like, okay, this is where people go missing, but, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. So a lot of it we'll lines up with the off. cave systems. A lot of yes. it lines up with the cave system. So you, then you think, yes. okay, well, like moon-eyed people or something are coming out of these places and snatching people up and dragging them back underground, maybe. And it's those ideas of, um, you know, there's, <clears throat> excuse me, old uh, stories about uh, in Norse myths and things like that about people being wooed into the underworld by. There was one about a dude who followed a magical horse and then got wooed into the underworld. Who this lady just like loved the shit out of him, the goddess of the underworld. And then um, he stayed there so long that she said, actually, you can't go back now. And whenever he came back out, it's a time travel story. Whenever he came back out, she said, you can come back out on a horse for one day, but you cannot touch the ground at all. And when he came back out of the underworld or whatever and ran around on this horse, he saw that hundreds of years had gone by. He, nothing looked familiar to him. And then there was a rock. He said that these little, he said everybody got a lot smaller. So again, there's like this idea of, shrinking of humanity after you've gone been gone for a while in this underworld where time passes much differently that was again allegedly underground so it's just fascinating when you start corroborating all of these things with cave systems with uh very isolated areas where you know it, you'd think that this place uh somebody would have settled there but there's probably a good reason why they haven't you know Maybe there's right yeah 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 there's definitely a up. connection with the caves yeah if you overlay the caves on the missing Four one one, and that damn one up there in weird. Oregon, up by you. You have you have you heard about that door that's up there in Oregon? That's all over TikTok. People are seeing this giant thirty foot uh, giant store. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've seen the video, uh, drone video. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. I I have seen that one. It's really cool looking. It looks like a giant door. It's like a fucking door in uh, the mountain. So uh, yeah, I mean, giant door. Who giant. knows? Like that's actually something that people talk about in mount adams like it's been filmed there's like a big hangar door but they they're like that's a ufo uh hangar so uh yeah yeah no uh i i think uh there's something going on with all these uh mountains and specifically like caves like that's another thing uh so in washington you got uh mount adams then you got uh, Mount Rainier, mm -hmm. which is where uh, Kenneth Arnold saw the first ever like flying saucer. Yeah. But the weird thing about that is he was like, the flying saucers are coming from Mount Rainier and they're doing a beeline straight to Mount Adams. And you got to think about that for a second. Uh, Mount Adams is, you know, it's a UFO hotspot. It's crazy that that's where they were going. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and you know there there are well-known lava tubes all over that area like uh mount rainier you can go inside the caves and also mount adams has lava tubes that are created by volcanoes so uh there's probably a lot more of these lava tubes that we don't know about like there has to be there uh has to be. yeah they're not telling us about everything there no way fuck no brother you're right Okay, um, I want to know also about, I mean, there's just so many. We're not going to be able to get to all these, by the way. But, guys, again, That's book okay. linked in the show description. Could not re like We recommend a lot of books on here. But, guys, this is so much fun to read, and it's such a well-written well book as well. Okay, so uh, Tiger's Nest Monastery in Bhutan. This was fascinating. They set up like a natural reserve that the government recognizes where Yeti is. Yes, yes. Uh, so if you look on the back cover here, 
that's uh, my uh, image of a Yeti. Did you draw uh, that? But no. Okay. No. Well, it's really good. No, well, thank you. AI drew, drew it. Okay. <laughs> well done. Way to tell <laughs> um, what to do. Yes. Yes. It took a lot of uh, tries to get that image. Actually, it wasn't easy. But anyway, uh, so Bhutan. Um, so Bhutan is an interesting country. It's uh, kind of north of India. It borders Nepal. And uh, throughout all the history of Bhutan, it's been an isolated country. Like their government has had this policy of isolationism. Basically, like no one was allowed in until the 1970s. It was kind of the very first time tourism was opened up in that country. And uh, even since then, though, it's really, really expensive. They charge a daily fee. Uh, I want to say like 250 50 bucks. To, it's right there. Boom. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Per day. So you got to be like pretty wealthy to even go to Bhutan and check it out. Like not very many people can afford that, I would think. But uh, anyway, it's uh, never been invaded by another country either. So that's kind of interesting. Like they've never been uh, colonized. So it's been kind of like the same power structure. It's been isolated from the world. No one has been there. And that's um, basically sets the stage for these Yeti sightings. And so uh, pretty recently, their government uh, decided to create this uh, natural sanctuary called the Sakteng National Park. And uh, they created it for the purpose of having a protected habitat for the Yetis. They call them Migwois and People there, like, they, they think they're real. They know they're real. And that is why the government, like, think about that happening here. I don't know, like, the government being like, we're going to create a protected Bigfoot habitat, you guys. Well, that they do. Literally- they just call it National Park, you know? <laughs> yeah, they don't tell us. They right. don't tell us. <laughs> yeah. National Forest, yeah. In, in, I guess in Bhutan, everyone knows they're real, so there's no point in, like, you know, not telling the truth about it. So they're like, this is our protected habitat for the Yetis. Uh, and it's a huge area. It's like really cool. It has like all these forests, mountains, rivers. It's like the perfect place for uh, wildlife to survive. And uh, so the only like documented expedition to this place was one of my heroes, Josh Gates, on his old show, uh, Destination Truth, he went there um, and he had to get all this special access to even get in there. And uh, he was able to like link up with some local hunters and stuff who told him where to look and where the Yetis were. And uh, long story short, his team found a couple hair samples sticking off from a tree, but like a higher height that they collected. And they took it back for analysis at the laboratory out at the end of the episode. And uh, this is a, was at the time a respected DNA analysis facility run by Dr. Ketchum, who this was her first introduction to Bigfoot or Sasquatch DNA. Later on, she wrote the Sasquatch Genome Project, which kind of ostracized her from the scientific community. But at this point in time, she was a very like well-respected scientist. 
And uh, she analyzed the sample, ran it through the database, and they're like, this actually doesn't match anything in our database, but clearly has indications of being human. It has uh, human markers. And so Josh Gates asked, is this uh, therefore a new species? And they said, well, there's no uh, primates at all in Bhutan. So whatever you found is something unknown. And uh, like they're like, we can't call it a new species just yet. You need some more evidence to go along with it, which is what she did actually after this all went down. She started collecting like Bigfoot DNA. And uh, anyway, uh, specifically in Bhutan, they have another one of these mystical, magical mountains called Gingwar Punsam, which is the highest unclimbed peak in the world. Uh, no one has ever climbed it. Um, and it's another one of these places that's shut off by the government because it's a uh, home to the gods, is what they say, the Buddhism state religion. Uh, so no one is allowed to go there. And um, there's another uh, documentary called the kingdom of the mountain Yeti, I, I think it's called. And in this documentary, they went to Gangwar Punsam and they had to get permission from the uh, prince, or I guess the king of Bhutan had to sign off on them going there. But fortunately he likes Yetis, so he let them go there. And um, it's just way, way out in the back Bhutan wilderness. Takes seven days for them to hike out there. And of course, like there's no people for one, you're not allowed to go in there, but it's just so rugged and remote and cold and desolate. And they make it to like the foothills of this mountain and they find the only uh, like viable water source. It's kind of just a small little pond. And uh, they took a DNA, DNA specialist and the specialist samples the pond and he finds um they later on, like they take a water sample and they do eDNA, which is environmental DNA. And what that means is it has trace elements of any organisms that are left behind in the environment. It will find them and tell you what it is. And so they tested this DNA and they're like, the only organism here is uh, something that is 99% human. And this had to have been within the last two weeks because the eDNA degrades so fast. And it's so far out in the middle of nowhere. It was really weird that they got any sign of human activity there. But then they're like, okay, but this actually wasn't fully human. It was a 99% human match. And um, like, what does that mean? Uh, it could be an undocumented ethnic group is what they say but then they they also say well that actually could be a completely different species it's uh you think about uh chimpanzees are 98.6 genetic match to human beings so a 99% match you would think something between us and chimpanzees it's not fully human but that is enough to be some other being completely so it's uh, it's actually really incredible. And I think that was probably those two discoveries were some of the greatest discoveries in uh, the history of this whole Bigfoot cryptozoology thing. 
and uh, it proves there's some kind of like human being out there that uh, or human type being out there that no one knows exactly what it is, but all evidence points to it being a Yeti because people have found their footprints. People have seen them like they're 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 well known to be there. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Doctor Melba Ketchum was so much thrown by a loop by all this. She was the scientist who analyzed the DNA. She later on goes on to create the, um, I, I think it's called the Sasquatch Genome Project, which she collected hundreds of uh, samples. And she uh, tried to publish a paper saying that she had genetically identified Bigfoot and Sasquatch she had found all these samples that showed the same being, uh, the same species. It's about, you know, 99% relative. And uh, she's like, she shows all the DNA analysis. It's a proper scientific paper. It gets peer reviewed by independent people and it's going to be published. And uh, right before it's about to be published in a nature scientific journal, uh, the editors are like, wait, this is Sasquatch we're talking about? Nope, we're, we're not going to publish that. They pull the article, and uh, even though it was already past all the peer review phase, they pull the article. And then Dr. Ketchum, like, she was very upset. So this is where I think she made a big mistake, was she was like, well, okay, you're not going to publish my paper I'm going to actually buy out this other scientific journal, uh, like just another smaller one that is up for sale. I'm going to be the owner and then I'll publish my paper there. And that's what she did. And she got so much flack for that because people kind of thought like, how can we trust you now? Because you own this paper and you published your own report in there and people fail to like see that it was due to be published and it was peer reviewed and no one had any problem with the actual science of any of it until the, I guess the nature journal or whatever was like, no, we, we're not going to be the ones who say Bigfoot is real. <laughs> so, so stupid. Uh, they would yeah. be the ones that should say it, right? Oh, nature. He hey, would... we found out they're not aliens or anything. They're just real. They're from nature. We live in harmony with them. It's going to be okay, guys. Yeah, you would think like this would be a major groundbreaking discovery. They would be very excited. They would give them so much press. But uh, uh, yeah, I guess it's too controversial even for uh, geneticists and scientists to back this up. And so after that, uh, Dr. Ketchum, she publishes online the study and she still has like, there's still the website. You can go look at the whole study if you're smart enough to understand the DNA analysis, it's all posted public publicly at this point. And uh, yeah, I think um, that study, it's very, very uh, unfortunate what happened with it and that no one at the time really took it seriously, you know. It's going to be one of those great things, though, like right now we're talking about it. And when science actually when real scientists start showing up and they're they're starting to take this shit seriously, then that's when it'll be appreciated, man. And that'll be a pioneering thing for her. So according to her, this is like you mentioned the aliens and funny you say that because she was like, I don't know. Okay. I don't know how she made this determination, but 
She was like, these things, I know that they evolved like relatively recently, probably like 15,000 years ago. Like I, she was able to tell that via the DNA. And she's like, they're an offshoot of human beings that are kind of like in our same family tree. But um, she then went on to say some stuff like, this is very similar to kind of the Anunnaki, the uh, Nephilim, the giants of the Bible and whatnot. Like we all, we think, she thinks this could be the same species that they're talking about in all this mythology. And she thinks like, uh, okay, it's a human that mixed with some kind of unknown DNA source to create this hybrid. That is our like genetic relative. It's a human hybrid. That's what they are according to her research. And she's like, okay, they could be like the Nephilim from the Bible. And I guess that was the final like nail of her um, ostracization from the science community. Like at that point, scientists like are spooked so bad by the time yeah. you start talking about <laughs> Nephilim and Anunnaki there, they, they put her through the ringer. Like they really did everything in their power to destroy her career. So, uh, <laughs> but I Is don't she know. still kicking it's, about. Yeah, well, okay. we should have her on. I think the That'd last, be fun. The last time I saw her, she did some interviews with like Coast to Coast. Uh, that was a little while ago, but uh, I'm certain you can still find her, look her up. Uh, I would be very interested to hear her story from her own uh, words again. Absolutely. I probably got a little bit of it wrong, but that's my memory. Enough to wow the fuck out of us and, and, and really hit home with the story. So thank you. Uh, you didn't, you know, enough for us to go look and say, man, we need to actually speak to Dr. Ketchum and get her on here. So um, we're going to cap it here, man. But this has been fucking amazing, guys. Uh, again, all the ways to find him located down in the show notes. Make sure that you check out uh, The Lands, Forgotten by Time, A Cryptozoologist Guide to Lost Worlds and Legends. A few things in here we didn't even touch on is the Mokile Pimbe. How do you say that? Yeah, I think dino. it's uh, Mokele Mabembe. Mokele yeah. Mabembe, okay. Uh, as well Dinosaurs. as the Valley of the Headless Men. You guys have got to check these out. The Nahani Valley as well, the Moon-Eyed People, the Songdong Cave of Vietnam, the Patagonia Land of Giants. You do it all and you do it right, Ben. And we thank you for that. Oh, right. man. Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.